Hello, welcome everyone. Um, nice to see you all. Um, my name is John King. I represent the Society for Algerian Studies, which is partially instrumental in, um, in organising this event. Um, and I'm delighted you've all been able to come. Um, before I start, I'm actually going to spend just a moment or two talking about something entirely different, which is that um, on Saturday, the 25th um, of January, uh, in the afternoon, at 2.30 in the afternoon, the address is here, it's called the Free World Centre at 60 Arundel Road, that's all on the publicity. Um, there is an event organised by the Algeria Solidarity Campaign um, under the title The Arab Uprisings, Reflections Three Years On. Um, they have a group of speakers including Joubert Ashkar, Hisham Yeza, and Mouneen Abu al um, some of whom you, you may know. There's a leaflet here, it's free, they ask you for a little contribution to pay for the venue, but, but, but it, it, is, it is in principle free, and uh, anybody who wants to go come and grab one of these off, off the desk afterwards, they're here for you to take. Now, tonight, um, Alice Wilson is a junior fellow in social anthropology at Homerton College at Cambridge University. Um, she is researching issues related to state power and sovereignty uh, in connection with what she tells us is the changing significance of pride in the government in exile at Western Sahara. Um, this is progressing towards a publication which is going to be called Remaking Sovereignty, State Power, Revolution and Exile in a Saharan Liberation Movement. Um, we're all looking forward to hearing what she has to say, and I am aware that this is a subject that arouses a certain amount of passion in various directions. Um, if anybody has any passionate views about it, we'll be very grateful to hear them after Alice has finished speaking. But please, will you please, will you kindly um, um, wait until the end before expressing any views, and always express views that you may wish to in the form of putting questions to the chair, please. I don't want any independent speeches on the floor, but that's all right with you. Um, so Alice, would you like to start? Okay. <clears throat> well, thank you very much, John, for this very kind introduction. It's great to be back here at the Middle East Studies Centre here, especially hosted by the Society for Algerian Studies. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay, good. Well, the broader topic that I want to address this evening is a question that has been of great interest and particular uh, uh, relevance for the Middle East and North Africa in recent years. And this is the question of where does change come from? Where does the kind of political change that can shake a status quo come from? Can it come from indigenous mobilization? Or, if indigenous mobilization is perceived not to be enough to bring about change, does there have to be external intervention? Well, for the Middle East and North Africa region as a whole, until a few years ago, scholars of that region were pretty much in agreement that for the status quo of authoritarian rule, indigenous mobilization would not bring about change. There would have to be external intervention. Then came the uprisings that we've come to call the Arab Spring, 
and they showed the fundamental inadequacy of, of that assumption that change could happen uh, in some cases indigenous mobilization changed the regime so what I'd like to do this evening uh, is to um, think about how if that assumption has been questioned more broadly for the Middle East and North Africa there are still some cases if you like uh, last bastions where that assumption is still held to uh, is still perceived to hold and I think that Western Sahara is one of those cases it's long been assumed that because of the stalemate in formal politics there, indigenous mobilization won't be enough to shake that stalemate. There would have to be some change of coming from external intervention. What I'd like to do this evening is complicate that notion for Western Sahara. I would like to qualify right from the outset that my intention is not to suggest that external intervention wouldn't be important along with many other people, I think it would be important. What I want to try and do is to just suggest some of the problems that underpin uh, the idea that change could only come in Western Sahara from external intervention. And I see uh, two problems that I want to address this evening. The first is with the notion of stalemate. I think this is a very partial reading. It applies to the formal politics, which are certainly very much stuck in stalemate. But actually, when you look at what's happening on the ground, when you look at indigenous mobilization, in recent years, there have been big changes. And some of these changes, I'll argue, have been game changers. The second, this leads me to the second problem that I want to address. And this is that if there is indigenous mobilization on the ground that is proliferating and intensifying, then we need to update that notion of change will come from external intervention. We have to ask further questions such as what could the role of those new forms of indigenous mobilization be? At the very least, if there ever were external intervention, could any stated goals of that intervention be achieved if they didn't take into account those forms of indigenous mobilization that are proliferating and intensifying on the ground? So those are the questions I want to address this evening. And to do so, I'll briefly give uh, an overview of the formal stalemate. And then I'll look at three forms of new indigenous mobilization on the ground, at least as I see it, in recent years. I'll look at the prol proliferation of popular contestation movements, popular dissent movements, aimed both at Morocco and at Polisario. I'll look at individuals who take a stand to create a very public political platform. And I'll look at new migration patterns between the two sides of the conflict, uh, two uh, areas within the conflict, where people are literally on the move, and I think they're creating new political platforms there too. So to address these issues, I'll be drawing on documentation from the public domain, such as newspaper articles, human rights reports, UN Secretary General reports, but I'll also be drawing on some of my own fieldwork. As John mentioned, I'm a social anthropologist, and from 2000, since 2006, and most recently in 2012, I've been doing fieldwork, and mostly in the refugee camps that are governed by the liberation from the liberation movement Polisario, uh, and they're located in Algeria. But I have 
done once briefly some fieldwork in the Moroccan controlled areas. I'm happy to answer questions on both fieldwork experiences. One reason that I focused on the refugee camps is that, uh, as John was mentioning earlier, the main interest in my research is in state power and sovereignty and in making a study of an exceptional form of government such as the liberation movement that's ruling the refugee camps and to ask through that questions about uh, conventional ideas about state power and sovereignty. And also, as John mentioned, I'm especially interested in how the changing situation of tribes in the refugee camps, <coughs> I think, allows us to rethink both Euro-American and North African notions about what state power and sovereignty are. So whilst I've been doing that research, there's been plenty of opportunity for me to see these new forms of indigenous mobilisation on the ground, to hear Saharawis talking about them. And so without further ado, I'll uh, get started with the paper. So I'm going to talk briefly now about the formal uh, stalemate and necessarily because of the constraints of time I have to give a selective overview and of course there'll be uh, plenty of time and questions and answers to go back to uh, uh, issues here if, if people want to. Well, self-determination has been on the cards for the territory in question since 1964. That was when the UN first uh, uh, formalised the uh, decolonisation agenda for this territory. So 2014 is the 50th anniversary. And the legal, international legal position on the territory um, was clarified in 1975 by the International Court of Justice advisory finding on Western Sahara, which found in favour of the right to self-determination of the people of Western Sahara. But nevertheless, uh, since 1975, Morocco has partially annexed the territory. And... Over the early period of the conflict, it built this um, wall. It's a highly militarised wall and um, often referred to as the berm. And so that divides the western part of the territory under Moroccan control from an eastern part under Polisario control that's very much connected to the refugee camps, which are here. And so uh, in the refugee camps, it's really uh, on an everyday basis, the de facto state authority that refugees come into contact with is Polisario rather than Algeria. Uh, the significant material resources in this conflict, um, phosphate, fishing, are on the Moroccan side. One of the things I'll be talking about is how people are a resource in this conflict, and of course they're much more mobile. And in that sense, they're very much on both sides of these two uh, um, zones in the conflict. Well, um, the UN brokered a ceasefire between Morocco and Polisario in 1991. Since then, the UN's had a mission for a referendum in Western Sahara, Minerso, but uh, the vote to date has never been held. There's been a standoff for about 10 years in which Morocco insists that it wouldn't allow a vote that has independence as an option, and Polisario says that it wouldn't participate in a vote unless independence was included as an option. So this stalemate is facilitated by the different uh, political support that both sides get. Uh, so Morocco, although it hasn't had formal recognition of its claims for sovereignty over Western Sahara, with the exception of Mauritania from 75 to 79 when it was a co-annexing power, but other than that, although no um, other countries recognise Moroccan sovereignty, Morocco gets very significant political support from allies such as France and the US. Polisario, for its part, has gained some uh, recognition from other states. For the state, it's set up for Western Sahara, the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, 
and that's also a member of the African Union, and it also gets political support from allies such as Algeria. So this is the nature of the stalemate, and there are new conflicts going on, new metaphorical battlefronts, you could say, about legitimacy, about reputation, about who would have the right to vote in a, in a referendum. Indeed, what would the question be? So I'm going to leave it there for the very brief overview of uh, the political stalemate in formal circles. Now, what such a view doesn't tell us is what's been happening on the ground. So I'll begin to talk about that now. So I want to talk first about how in the past few years I think we can see an intensification of dissent movements amongst Sahrawis aimed both at Morocco and at Polisario. I'll talk first about uh, instances aimed at Morocco and then aimed at Polisario. Now, um, it's important to mention from the outset that the notion of popular dissent aimed at both parties is not without precedent. Certainly for uh, Sahrawis mobilising against Morocco on the um, Moroccan-controlled side, uh, there have been waves of demonstrations since 1999 and from 2005, Sahrawis have referred to those as their own intifada. Nevertheless, in the last few years, we've seen something on a very, very different scale. So the first uh, instance of this are the protest camps that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, Gede Mizik. So this is an image of the, uh, of the uh, protest camps. So these were set up between October and November 2010. Uh, a few kilometres outside of Ayoun, the capital of, of Western Sahara. So the UN estimate is that there were over 15,000 people involved. Uh, one French report uh, estimates 20,000 people. And it's important to mention that when the UN did its uh, initial findings for who would be able to vote in a referendum back in 2000, it found about 41,000 adult Sahrawis under Moroccan control. So 10 years later, if you've got between 15 and 20,000 demonstrating, proportionally that is very, very high. Now, um, some of the Moroccan reports of this camp really uh, present them as a set of economic complaints about the situation. And I think, as for other Arab Spring uprisings, we need to question the validity of trying to separate out economic and political concerns. They're very much interlinked uh, in these protests and in the Arab Spring protests more broadly. Um, this is a, an image from the internet of the sort of mobilisation going on there. And as I'm sure you all know, Gede Mizik runs badly. Um, so the camp was destroyed by um, Moroccan forces and this led to an outbreak of violence and there were casualties on both sides. There were riots in the Ayoun, property was destroyed on both sides. <clears throat> so it ends pretty badly. I think that Gede Mizik was a game changer. For example, some of the Moroccan press writing about it say how it laid to rest the myth of peaceful cohabitation between Sahrawis and Moroccans on the Moroccan-controlled side. When I was doing field work briefly in that area and I was asking Sahrawis about their views of how things had changed, some of the things they talked about was that when previously they'd gone into Moroccan cities in the north, they didn't change their clothes, which identified them as Sahrawis, I'm talking about women here, and they didn't change the way they spoke, which also identified them as Sahrawis. They said absolutely now they did. They changed their dress, they changed the way they spoke because they felt that they suffered a lot more... Uh, uh, discrimination since G'day Musique. So the, so the situation has become much, much more, more tense. And indeed, there have been some other um, violent uh, encounters since then, and 
This also isn't the only uh, instance of a very, very large-scale protest. In May 2013, there was a very large protest again in the capital. It's very difficult to know how many people involved, but the Moroccan press describe it as a, a protest without precedent. So in the last couple of years, we've seen a whole new scale of the um, manifestation of dissent on the Moroccan-controlled side. Thinking now about the uh, Polisario side, now here again there's also precedent for popular protest. Back in 1988 there were protests in the refugee camps that were violently put down by Polisario and that led to a political crisis and then eventually political opening. So there is a, a past history of dissent, a collective manifestation of dissent in, in the refugee camps. But I think in recent years it's changed in the sense that for certain topics such as criticising abuses of power on the part of Polisario, that's now become part of the everyday culture in the refugee camps that people can publicly, collectively gather to uh, go on demonstration and show their discontent about that. I'm sorry, show their discontent about that and demand change. And I think that's a, uh, a transformation in the everyday political culture in the refugee camps. It's interesting to point out that these movements um, or these demonstrations don't call for the downfall of Polisario per se. They're calling for reform in Polisario, for change of particular policies. And so two researchers who've worked on these, Gormes and Omet, call them non-dissident dissidents to try and capture this idea that they're both dissident and non-dissident. They want to change Polisario, but they still ultimately support what Polisario stands for, the option for self-determination. So um, I had, uh, in my trips to the refugee camps, um, as luck would have it, I've never been there at the time of one of these demonstrations, but people have talked to me about them, and this was kind of the closest that I got. Um, so this lady is um, at the public meeting for the um, elections for the parliament that were held in 2012. So this is the kind of forum that Polisario sets up as a forum in which people can express uh, discontent. And this lady was complaining about MPs who were standing for re-election at that time. So at this event, um, something that I couldn't photograph because it happened very spontaneously, as, as I'll explain, some other ladies, on the next day when it was voting, two ladies turned up and they wanted to vote. And they, found, they discovered that they weren't on the voting list. And they got very obsessed about this. They demanded to see the overseer of the electoral station. So I happened to be there because I was observing the elections. And they said to him, this is absolutely not okay. We've worked for Polisario. We want to vote. We deserve to vote. We won't accept this. We're going to go on demonstration. It was very interesting, the ease with which they slipped into that vocabulary. On that particular occasion, it turned out the women hadn't been in the refugee camps at the time of voter registration. They'd been out in Spain doing other things, and so they eventually accepted that, well, they hadn't been there when they could have registered, so they weren't on the list. But I think this is a very interesting uh, change in the refugee camps that for some areas, I'll talk shortly about limitations to that uh, public expression of dissent there, but um, there has been a, a transformation, I think, that it's now much more part of everyday political culture there that dissent can be collectively expressed in public. And according to Gormes and Omet, there are also such um, movements to collectively express criticism of Polisario amongst the Sahrawi diaspora in Spain, and they talk about on the Moroccan-controlled areas as well. So thinking now about not collective uh, movements, but individuals who take a stand. So these cases will probably be 
very well known to those of you who follow Western Sahara, what I hope to do in bringing them together is suggest that there's a pattern here in recent years of these new uh, out individuals trying to take a stand and get international attention, indeed successfully. So the first case is Amina Suhaidar. As I'm sure many of you know, in 2009, she was um, expelled from, um, from uh, Morocco because she'd uh, uh, tried to put that her um, nationality was Sahrawi on her landing card when she was returning. She's a human rights activist, uh, very well known to the Moroccan authorities. So it's interesting, somewhat ironically, uh, so this happened in 2009. So a year later, a demonstration of between 15 and 20,000 Sahrawis didn't make a big press impact. There was some Al Jazeera coverage, but it didn't make a big press impact in European language press, apart from in Spain, where you know, they're very interested in Western Sahara. But Amir Tohaidar, one woman a year earlier, she really did get a lot of press attention. It's the only time in my research when my parents' friends have started emailing me saying, isn't this what you work on? They'd never seen any coverage of it before in the press. And um, so uh, eventually, under intense diplomatic pressure, Morocco let her back in. Hers isn't an isolated case. In the same year, there was the case of the Casablanca 7, as they've been dubbed. And these were seven Sahrawis who went to visit the refugee camps and returned to Morocco. And that's something that Morocco doesn't um, uh, allow its citizens to do. The people it claims as its citizens, outside the context of the UN-organized family reunion visits, it's seen as a... you know. Um, a subversive action, and indeed on their return they were arrested. And over the course, in various groups over the next 18 months, they were released. Um, but that got a lot of um, attention for, from human rights organisations who were concerned about their, um, their arrest. Now there's also a Polisario version of this kind of movement to take a stand. This happened in 2010. So Mustafa Sidi Mouloud was a very high-ranking Polisario security officer, and he'd made a visit to family members on the Moroccan-controlled side of Western Sahara. And very unusually, before returning to the camps, he went public announcing that he wanted to return to the camps to stage a debate there about autonomy, as Morocco's proposing for the territory, as an option. And this is something that Polisario doesn't allow. And Indeed, as was expected, on his way back to the camps, he was arrested by Polisario before he got to the camps. And of course, human rights groups got very upset about this and criticised Polisario for not allowing there to be a free debate in the camps on this, not allowing him to hold those political opinions there. And after about 40 days, he was released. So I've put these cases together to suggest that in recent years we've seen another kind of shift, which is individuals making these very high-profile stands and indeed getting international attention for that. So the last kind of mobilisation I'm going to talk about, I've called moving to beat the system. So here I'm going to talk about migration between the two areas of the conflict. There are many other migration movements that Saharawis are involved in, and I'm happy to talk about them in questions, but I'm just going to be talking uh, for the moment about movement between the two sides of the conflict zone. Now, for a long time it was very difficult to move back and forth uh, during the war years, from the ceasefire, um, Morocco actively welcomed and, and continues to welcome uh, people to return from the refugee camps, um, which they have to do by going all the way around the, the berm. And uh, so for people who want to make that political commitment on arrival, saying we now endorse Moroccan claims to Western Sahara, there are stipends available and housing available. 
Uh, so I'll call these people returners, which is one of the terms in Arabic used for them. It's a problematic term, uh, but I'll just call them that to call them something. So um, Morocco claims about uh, 8,000 people have made this uh, journey. Um, there are question marks as to whether they're all from the refugee camps. Um, indeed, uh, there are some uh, cases that have been reported of Mauritanians who've posed as people from the refugee camps, claimed the benefits, and after time sold the houses and returned to Mauritania enriched. So that's one migration trend. Another trend is for people from the Moroccan-controlled areas coming to the refugee camps. And obviously, many people have come because of political persecution, and that didn't just happen at the, uh, during the uh, outbreak of the war and before the, the berm being built. You know, the people have continued to come ever since. But in the late 2000s, I was interested to come across instances, especially single young men, who didn't talk about political persecution directed especially at them. They talked about how it had been very difficult to get a good job in the, uh, on the, um, in the Moroccan-controlled territories, and they wanted to see what better economic opportunities there were in the camps. There were a lot of NGOs there. There are salaries in euros available for people who you know, play their cards right. Others talked about the educational opportunities. And they said that they didn't think they were getting a good ed education back on the Moroccan-controlled side. Indeed, they said that they felt Sahrawis were discriminated against in the classroom for speaking Hassaniya and things like that. And they were interested in the educational opportunities because there are friendly countries that educate students from the refugee camps for free abroad. So there are um, you know, significant educational opportunities that some of them were trying to tap into. Some of these, so when, the, when I met these people, they were very clear to me. They said, there's no problem with Polisario. We're registered for Russians. We've got our Saad Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic ID card. They can vote if they were there at the registration time. Uh, um, but they were very adamant with me. They said, you can't take photos of us that people might see and then know in Morocco that we came here. Because they were afraid of running the risk that, as we saw from the case of the Casablanca 7, uh, there was a risk of, of arrest if they decided to go back, as some of them did, certainly some of the ones I knew. So, and I want to talk about a boom that happened in 2010 of the returners. So this was a boom that was reported in Moroccan press articles, and indeed uh, Sahrawi refugees, when I was back in the camps in 2011, certainly remembered this boom. They remembered seeing more Sahrawis on TV. So Moroccan TV will um, broadcast uh, returners telling their stories, and Sahrawi refugees can tune in to Moroccan TV, and so they, they can watch these broadcasts. And some of them would recognize people, sometimes close relatives, that they didn't even know had left, and they would see them there. But in some of these cases, and indeed I met people for whom this had been the case, and my interlocutors could name many more, it was a move to get resources. These people, after a while, some of them sold the house that they'd been given, sold the documentation that gave them the right to the stipend, and appeared back in the camps. The uh, very popular form of investing this wealth for young men was the new car, the Toyota, as they call it. And so this was a very interesting development, I think, because it shows how the movement of returners was being manipulated by people on the ground and emptying it of the classic political meaning that's been attributed to it and actually giving it quite a different meaning, which people were out to get what they could for themselves. So after Gedeim Zik, the policy for benefits for returners was changed and... Um, 
I've been told that currently you have to be in a family group to get those same benefits, and single young men don't get the same range of benefits anymore, and the boom has stopped. And I think it's significant to think about the, the uh, context at that time. In 2008, after the financial crisis in Europe, Spain, which historically was the most popular destination for young men trying to make money from the refugee camps, was no longer a very good place to go and make money. Very, very, very difficult to find a job there. And so there was certainly a new, an appetite to look for new opportunities to make money. <coughs> Well, before I move to a brief conclusion, I want to mention a conspicuous absence from the new forms of mobilisation that I've talked about. I haven't talked about Islamist radicalisation, and there's a very simple reason, which is I haven't seen any evidence of it. What I have seen in the camps is there are some people who have a much more conservative Islamic practice than other refugees, and they're seen as certainly a minority and, and, and seen as something as a puzzle by, by most of the refugees. But I haven't seen any evidence that those people are trying to capture state power or political power and change the political agenda of Polisario. So that's why I can't talk about that as a form of political mobilisation. So I will um, move now towards some conclusions. So in sum, I've wanted to point out three kinds of uh, mobilisations on the ground that I see as new political mobilisations amongst Sahrawis. Popular movements for consent, uh, I'm sorry, popular movements for dissent, aimed both at Polisario Morocco, individuals taking a stand to capture a very high-profile international uh, platform, and new migratory movements that are changing the uh, emptying one political content and creating a new kind of content for those migration movements. So, in the first instance, I brought these movements together to, into an overview to suggest how, on the ground, it's not a case of stalemate in recent years. It's been a very dynamic situation. There have been new political platforms created. <clears throat> And um, it's not a case of there's no change in sight, and there have been some game changes in recent years. And so reflecting on this more broadly, I think that we can think in terms of it being useful to distinguish between a conflict over territory and a conflict over people. So anthropologists have long been interested in debates about what might it mean to claim sovereignty over people versus sovereignty over territory. And I think that it's useful to explore that distinction with regard to uh, a conflict such as here. As we can see, the conflict of the territory is very much locked in stalemate. Uh, the territories are mobile. There have been no changes on, on the map of who's controlling what for many years now. And so that conflict seems very much stuck in a stalemate. The conflict over the people is looking quite different. There, there have been game changes in recent years. It's a very dynamic situation on the ground, and there are new political platforms being created. It follows that if we're thinking about new political mobilization on the ground, then we do have to think, what are the implications of this for the conflict? Now, of course, none of the mobilization forms I've talked about have shaken the formal status quo. Nevertheless, I think that their existence suggests that we need to update that old assumption that change could only come from, in Western Sahara from external intervention. Indigenous political mobilisation is proliferating there, it's intensifying, it's reaching international audiences, that's likely only to make it intensify and proliferate all the more. And so I think that 
any assumption that suggests that indigenous mobilization could be overlooked is out of date and only of limited help. Finally, I want to leave you with a thought of that bigger picture. Where does political change come from? One lesson of the Arab Spring was that even when we didn't expect it, political change could come from indigenous mobilization. We're now on a very different stage of the Arab Spring, but I think it's still a time when we can reflect on those lessons from the Arab Spring and think about how they can ask us to see old assumptions in new ways. <laughs>